For the last few weeks here at Christ the King, we've been uh, doing a, a kind of series of sorts. We've been thinking together as a church community about what it means for us to be um, a three streams church, which if you're visiting for the first time this Sunday may not mean a terrible lot to you. Um, but for us here at Christ the King, we've been talking for a while now about what it would mean for us to be a faith community that is shaped by the scripture and led by the spirit and strengthened by the sacraments, holding together this threefold commitment to scripture, spirit, and sacrament as we try to follow Jesus, being shaped by these things, these gifts that Jesus has given to us. And so we spent the last month of October looking at what it means to be shaped by scripture. What do we actually mean when we say that? And now we're going to pivot into the month of November, thinking together, which is apparently a spirit week for us around here, which does not mean that we will be dressing up in costumes. <laughs> As a parent, um, I giggled a little, I'm not going to lie. If you're a parent, you know what spirit week means. Uh, it means something different for us here. For the, next, for the month of November, we're going to be thinking together about what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. Does that actually mean? And focusing on it through the lectionary, through the text assigned to us uh, each week. And so this is our uh, sort of first Sunday in, in getting to do that. And we're going to be doing that this morning uh, through the Old Testament reading, actually, through Joshua 3. And that will be our rhythm. We'll spend time every Sunday looking at the Bible together through the lectionary. And then midweek, we've been posting these midweek podcasts, just reflecting, kind of taking a different approach, maybe asking it more practically speaking, uh, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? So today, that's exactly the question. What does it mean to be led, Lord, by the Holy Spirit? I want to just sort of say this uh, here at the outset, the beginning of this time, uh, bears sort of repeating, if, particularly if you don't know me or us here at Christ the King, or maybe the Anglican thing is new to you, and um, therefore, you know, it's like, what, does, what do Anglicans believe? Uh, as a, I would like to know how many people in Northwest Arkansas have been Googling precisely that question over the last number of months. Anglicans, what do they believe? Um, well, so at least with respect to the Trinity, let me say this. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, I think it's really important that we remember um, who God is. That what we believe about who the Holy Spirit is, of course, connected to who we believe the Lord to be, which um, is, of course, a Trinity. Christians have been saying um, for centuries now that God exists in relationship, that he is, God is, of one substance, this eternal, mutually indwelling relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, God's heart is communion. It is who he is, which is one of the reasons that we set this table as the center of our life together. It's not to say that the sacrament is more important than who Jesus is. It's just to say that Jesus is who he is as a reflection of God's own heart, which is communion. And we are invited into this co-eternal, indivisible, mutually loving heart when we come together to worship when we come to this table that's who god is so the reason i'm saying that is because sometimes i feel like when we talk about the holy spirit it's so tempting to sort of separate him out over here in some distinct way from god do you know or from jesus or whatever and think about them independently and it's not that that's entirely wrong because it's important that you know like when we talk about the holy spirit what are we talking about but I actually think, um, Isaiah and I were talking about this earlier this week. Um, you all maybe even have heard me say, and I've said many times before, it's like when we talk about the Holy Spirit, for me as a Baptist growing up, it was always like, you know, your kind of slightly quirky uncle who gets invited to family dinners, and we like him, and we're glad he's there, but he makes us a little bit nervous. I'm never exactly sure what he's going to do. And if you grew up in spaces where it's like the Holy Spirit was sort of a given, but also, you know, spaces where they really talked about the Spirit a lot made you a little bit nervous. 
Here's the thing about that. When we talk about who the Holy Spirit is, we are talking about the presence of Jesus, y'all. How we know Jesus today is through his Spirit. We've said it many times here, but it just bears repeating. It's good that I go away, Jesus said, because when I do, the Comforter will come, and he will lead you and guide you into truth. And he won't do that in some radically scary, quirky way that was different than the way I did it. He'll just do it as I have done it. He will make known to you the things that the Father has made known to me. You are being invited into the presence of Jesus when we invite you into the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what that means. And so if that helps settle you and open you up, to open yourself up to the Spirit is just simply to open yourself up to who God is. That's what we mean. And we'll be talking more and more about that in weeks to come, but just to settle us, we're just talking about the Lord. And we're doing it specifically this week through Joshua 3. And that's interesting because actually the Holy Spirit doesn't make an overt appearance <laughs> in this text. If you were looking for him as we read and thought maybe you missed, you didn't. Um, he's not there in an overt way. But I actually think the imagery of this text and this story is so profoundly helpful and important. And I think, you know, y'all just to say it, um, timely for us here. I believe with, with my whole heart. And so I want us to understand what's happening in the story so that we can maybe think together about what the Spirit might be doing and might say to us. Joshua 3. Moses has died um, by the time we get to the beginning of Joshua. And Moses has appointed Joshua to lead in his stead. So Joshua's job is going to be to be the one to lead the people of Israel now from Sinai, or the outskirts of Sinai, to the Promised Land. And um, the only way to get there is to cross the Jordan River. And so when we pick up in Joshua 3, God has said to, Moses, or God has said to Joshua, rather, um, I'm going to take you somewhere you've never been before. And the way that you're going to get there is by following me. And so in these verses where we pick up, Joshua is now telling the people of Israel how we're going to get to the promised land, how we're going to get home, to where God has been leading us all along. And what Joshua says what God said, is that I want you to appoint some priests. Here's what's fascinating to me, and I wanted to say this here at the beginning. If you're thinking, wait a second, Sinai, and now we've got, we're at the river, and now we've got to cross through the water to get to where we're going, that sounds very familiar. Didn't we just do that? <laughs> like Just like a few stories ago? And yes is the answer. This is for Israel is a kind of a, a T.S. Eliot moment in Little Getting. Anybody? There's this line from Little Getting when T.S. Eliot says, um, at the end of all of our exploring, will be to arrive at the beginning and know it for the first time. Um, I think there's something like that happening here for Israel. They've done all this exploring, all this adventuring with God, and now here they find themselves once again just at the edge of the water with an invitation to try to get across. And the reason that I want to say that to you all is because in my life with the Lord, here's what I can say. I don't know that any of us ever really truly totally starts over brand new for the first time. Our life with God is going to be these kind of like little getting T.S. Eliot moments where you do all this exploring and then you find yourself back where you began for the first time. To like start again with God. And I think that's who the Holy Spirit has been and continues to be in my life. It's just this constant, persistent invitation that I can start again with Jesus, that there are new things to see, new adventures to take, new things to learn, and he's just the one extending that invitation to us over and over and over again. 
And so here's Israel at the water's edge. They got to get across, and this time it's the priests who are going to lead them there. Joshua has to appoint 12 people, 12 men, these priests who are going to bear the Ark of the Covenant, take it into the river, and when they stand in the midst of the river, they're going to hold up the Ark of the Covenant, and the waters are going to part so that Israel can cross over and go through. Now, there are a few things that I think we need to bear in mind so that we can really grasp what's happening here and the significance of it. The first of which is, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, do we know what we're holding and why? Because we can't make sense of what God's doing if we don't understand that. The Ark of the Covenant, not the boat, ark, different ark. That would be wild. <laughs> uh, holding up the big boat in the middle of the river. Not that one, different one. This is the box, not the boat. The Ark of the Covenant is the box that Israel's constructed to build on Sinai. You remember? into which they were going to put the commandments, did put the commandments. And Israel was instructed to carry this Ark of the Covenant with them wherever they went, a nomadic people, you remember, on a journey with God. And they were going to carry the Ark with them, holding the Ten Commandments, the promises of God, the words of God, the only written words they'd received, held within the Ark of the Covenant, and this was going to be the sign of God's presence with them, a visible representation, a physical manifestation of God's presence with them as they wandered home. So holy. Whenever it came to rest, it would eventually make its way into the tabernacle and then later into the temple, into every time it came to rest, that was the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum. And it was from this place that God met with Israel. Um, the Ark of the Covenant had a lid. This box had a lid, and this lid was covered with gold. Do you remember what the lid was called, anybody? Ah, mercy seat. A mercy seat. The ends of which God tells the Israelites to build two cherubim, giant angels, that would be situated at either end of the mercy seat with their wings overstretched, I think I've, we've talked about this before, this way, touching tip to tip, looking their eyes at the mercy seat. And it was between the cherubim over the mercy seat, specifically, that God says to Moses, and I will meet with you here. This will be the place from which my presence is mediated to you and through you. And Moses would go into the Holy of Holies and he would meet with God from between the cherubim over the mercy seat. Yeah. Holy. It was the only visible representation of God's presence that held within it the words of God by which God's presence was mediated to his people. Hmm. Physical representation of God holds within it the words of God and through it God's presence is mediated to his people. That sounds strangely familiar, almost as if one could describe Jesus in exactly those same terms. Yes? I want you to hold the ark, and I want you to carry it into the midst of the river. And when people see the ark of my covenant, my presence, resting on you, then they will follow you home. So back to Joshua 3. In your mind, put yourself in the place of a priest 
who has very little idea what that actually means, bear in mind at this point in the story. About five minutes ago, you were a slave in Egypt. About five minutes ago, you didn't know for sure that there was a God. And most days, you probably wake up still not terribly sure, because since all that really cool stuff happened in Egypt, you've been basically hanging out in the woods. But you're a priest nonetheless. And today you've been tasked by God, so that guy says, to bear the Ark of the Covenant, to pick up this giant, massive box, which, by the way, apparently is a big deal because if you touch it the wrong way, you're dead. <laughs> You'll mess around with the box. And so you and these guys have to take it, and you've got to go stand in the river. And this river, by the way, is flooding it's harvest time. And it's your job to pick it up, hold it, and all you know that you have to do is walk out first and trust that when you do, God will do his part. And so they do. They pick up the Ark of the Covenant. They carry it. And the text tells us that when they get to the edges of the water and their toes hit the water, the waters begin to part. And the priests walk into the river and they stand in the middle of it so the waters will divide and the people of Israel can cross over and go home. One of my favorite moments in the Bible is imagining, or things maybe, rather, about the Bible. One of my favorite moments is the entire book of Romans. <laughs> in part, so when people like, people assume because I'm a, a woman pastor that I'm going to have beef with Paul. Um, I don't. Before Paul became the Apostle Paul, Paul was a Pharisee named Saul, which means he was a legal expert. He was a Bible nerd, just like me. He spent his entire life devoted to the scripture, to memorizing it, to knowing these stories. He was in love with it. A Pharisee of Pharisees, he said. Born of the tribe of Benjamin, he said proudly. And then he has this radical encounter with Jesus. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about what it would be like to be Saul and to sit down with your scrolls after your encounter with Jesus and go back and read those same texts that you had known and read a million hundred thousand times and knew by heart and go back and read them as if for the first time at the end of all of our exploring be to return to the beginning and to know it for the first time and to see Jesus there so Romans 3 I think I don't know how he wrote it I imagine it like most of it he wrote with face down just like this trying to write but in Romans 3, he says this of Jesus. Maybe you know the verse. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift. That would have been him, me. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement, and your Bible will have a footnote that says, as a mercy seat by his blood, effective through faith. 
I don't know when or how it happened, but at some point, Paul went back and read Joshua 3. And he saw the Lord there. And what a beautiful thing that must have been to realize. Here's the connection to the Holy Spirit. When Jesus gathers the disciples together in the New Testament, and he knows he's about to leave them, he gathers his 12 together, and he says, I'm not leaving you. I will not leave you orphaned. You are not by yourself. And here's the reason that that means so much to me is because if you have ever felt orphaned, you know what a terrible, awful fear that is. And here's the thing. There's no way to have spent three years with Jesus and then to not have Jesus and to not fear feeling orphaned. Once you've been with the Father, I suspect you don't ever want to be without him again. And so Jesus looked at him and said, I am not leaving you orphaned. It's good that I go away because when I do, the comforter will come and he will lead you and he will guide you. My presence is going to rest on you. And when my presence rests on you, other people are going to look at you and they will follow you home. Do you see? When my spirit comes, my promises are going to fill you. The, my presence will rest on you in a way that people can see and recognize. And if you will follow me, if you will move into deep water, if you will take risks and follow me and stand in the place where they're too afraid to stand, if you will stand there, they will look at you and see my presence resting on you and they will have and find the courage they need to follow you where they otherwise wouldn't go. Here's what I believe is true. I believe that there are here, and I say this without, please hear me, a hint of drama or arrogance, just with as sincerely as I know how to say to you, I believe there are some of you who are being called and appointed by the Lord to move into deep waters so that people can see the work of the Spirit in you and through you and follow the Lord home. And y'all, even maybe the subtext of that is, maybe we don't get where we are meant to go unless you choose to come and stand at the water's edge and move into it. What would it mean if those of us here who knew, who knew that we were called by God for that place in the middle of the river would choose to take the risk and follow in there. This morning, I was having my own kind of like full circle moment because I remembered years and years ago, I was in Conway, Arkansas. I went out to run and pray and that Crowder song had just come out, Come and Listen. Do you remember this song? Somebody went to a passion conference in here and they remember. <laughs> Stuff was good. Crowder wrote this song called Come and Listen. Come and Listen. 
Come and listen, and I will tell you what he has done. Come and listen, you who fear the Lord. Come and listen, you who are weary, and I will tell you of what he has done for me. He has done for you. He has done for us. And y'all, I knew running laps in that trailer park that I was being called by Jesus and I did not know what that meant except for that all I wanted for my whole life was be able to hold him up in a way that would give other people the courage they needed to step into what God had for them. And I know that there are people in this room who have been called in exactly the same way. And so what I am extending to you is an invitation to say yes. Come to the water's edge, Crowder says. You who fear the Lord. Come to the water's edge, you who are weary. And I will tell you what he has done. He lives. He is a living God who loves you and who has called you. And I don't know exactly what that means for you. I don't know those of you to whom he is appointed, and I don't even know what it means. It's just my job to say so. The rest of us are going to be figuring out for ourselves in a similar way. What does it mean to step into deep waters? What does it mean to trust the Lord, to take risks, to follow him there? And I don't know exactly. I do know, though, that it's the way we get to where we're meant to go for you individually and for us corporately. Hold him up. Invite him to come. Stand in the river and let him do the rest. That's it. So at the end of our time together today, when we pray, we're going to extend an invitation for you to come and receive prayer and extend an invitation for you to mark time with the Holy Spirit. Between now and the end of the year, thinking about it from Monday to Friday, if you were to commit every Monday to Friday, those five days to the Lord from now to the end of the year, it'd be 40 days. For those of you who've been around Christ the King, we've talked about before, in the Bible, over and over and over and over and over again, 40 days, 40 years, it's an invitation to step into something new that God's bringing to birth out of the old. And so you have that time. I believe the Lord is inviting some of us into a time of committed prayer to figure out what it means for us to serve him and follow him. And so if it resonates with you, my ask of you is that you say so. My ask is that you take a risk and tell somebody so that we can pray together. Let someone commit this time, which is holy and sacred time, for you to the Lord. And if you just happen to be here as a guest and visiting on Sunday on your way somewhere else, um, the invitation stands for you too. It's the Lord's invitation, not ours. Amen. Amen.